The following podcast contains occasional bursts of adult language. I can't think of any novel or any piece of art that seemed like a good idea in the first draft of it. You're legitimate even if you don't publish. You know, Emily Dickinson was a legitimate poet. Van Gogh was a legitimate artist. That's sort of what literature is. It's a weird group of awkward people who don't care about football. You want your work to be read? Then write the best damn book possible. From Studio B in Dubai, this is the Brevity Podcast. I'm Allison K. Williams, and this episode we'll be talking with Rhiannon Maven, author of Only Child, and Ander Munson, the editor-in-chief of Diagram. Today we're speaking with debut author Rhiannon Navin. She's written Only Child, the story of an eight-year-old boy who survives a school shooting that kills his brother and what happens to their family in the aftermath. Now, Only Child is a novel, and normally brevity only deals with nonfiction, but I think this novel fits our scope because Rhiannon wrote it from a place of wrestling with her personal experience and the things that were affecting her own children day to day. So he wrote a book called Only Child, and what led you to write this book? What gave you the idea? Well, it started with a very personal experience that I had with one of my children. I have three children. My oldest son, Samuel, is 11. And my twins, Garrett and Frankie, are seven now. They were um, just starting kindergarten at the time. And uh, just a few weeks into kindergarten, they had their first lockdown dr- drill at school. And came home, told me all about it. And then that afternoon, I found my son Garrett hiding underneath the dining room table. And I said, buddy, what are you doing under the table? He said, mama, I'm hiding from the bad guy. And that is something that really affected me deeply, personally. And this was two years after Sandy Hook, which also was just an experience that just shook me to the core. And I decided right then and there, when I found Garrett hiding under the table, that, you know what, that's a story that I really want to write. This is a story that I want to put down on paper. What does it look like from a child's perspective to actually be part of such a horrific experience? And what does it feel like during and what does it feel like after? And how is that from a child's perspective through a six-year-old's eyes? How far away are you physically from Sandy Hook? I live in New Rochelle in Westchester, and it's a nice suburban area. Sandy Hook is about, I would, I would guess, an hour's drive from here at most, and same setting. It's quaint. It's nice. People move there from the city for safety reasons. It's a highly rated school district, just like ours, so it's, it's a very similar scenario. So what made you go, okay, I had this experience with my child that really unsettled me, What made you go and writing a book is the way I will process that? That's a really good question because I have never written anything before this. This is the very first time. And I think I just really needed something that shook me so deeply or affected me so deeply that I felt like I need some form of outlet or a creative outlet to to deal with this. And I also thought if this is a story that I can tell from such a unique perspective, then maybe that is something that people would be interested in Mm -hmm. and that might be able to contribute 
in a meaningful way to the conversation about a very controversial topic, obviously a subject. So yeah, I, I don't know what possessed me, but I felt like I needed to sit down and I needed to try to write this story. So why writing? Why writing and not painting or composing a symphony? Like what made, what made writing your tool? Well, I am a big reader. I'm a big lover of books. I love great stories. I love how you can kind of get lost in them. And I love how you can be exposed to a different, you can walk in someone else's shoes for a while. And, and you learn perhaps something that you, that you didn't know before. Why didn't I do a symphony? Because I suck at music. <laughs> and writing all of a sudden seemed like a natural thing for me. And once I got started with something that I've, like I said, never done before, I was pretty much instantly hooked. And it did exactly what I hoped. It was a great outlet for me and a great way to process all these feelings that I had. You and I actually worked together a bit. Uh, disclosure, I was uh, the freelance editor who uh, was able to assist a little tiny bit in terms of forward motion in this book. And now you've moved into the publication process. And what was that like? So you wrote a manuscript. You actually got an agent extremely quickly, which is pretty unusual and, and pretty cool. And you got a publisher extremely quickly. So after the whirlwind of, I have a book, I have an agent, I have a publisher, what happened next? Well, first I have to, have to say, full disclosure, you help a lot more than just a little bit. And I think that the reason why everything happened as quickly as it did was that I went out with a manuscript that was extremely prepared and, and ready, and that was thanks to you. <laughs> well, you're the one who did the writing. But you got me all buttoned up. So yeah, you're right. I, I got an agent extremely fast. His name is Jeff Kleiman at Folio. And after a few edits with him, we went out, and I was extremely lucky to have several publishing houses interested here and, and also overseas. And um, yeah, so it went to Knopf here in the U.S. and Mantle in the U.K. And now it's, um, I think we're up to 16 territories worldwide, 15 other languages. That's pretty cool. So what now is we are five months away, like you said in the very beginning. And I am kind of taking it step day by day, step by step, because every single thing is new to me. So every day I'm, I'm learning something new. How do you, as a stay-at-home mother of three with two cats, and there's a puppy joining the house in a couple of weeks, and a husband who works really long hours, how do you make time to write around that level of interruption in your life? There was a steep learning curve there because before I started writing, I was only a stay-at-home mom, and somehow I was never bored. There was always plenty to do. So now all of a sudden, I was trying to make time for this new thing that, you know, is it a hobby? Is it, it's all of a sudden I'm prioritizing something that wasn't there before, and you actually helped me with that a little bit. You helped me <laughs> learn how to make time, and, and basically I had to learn that it was okay to have dirty dishes in the sink and to do something that was important to me. And so I worked around the kids' school schedule. So they go off to school, and then I planned out my day in a way that I made sure I always planned a certain amount of writing time. 
and then try to squeeze everything else into the remaining time. So, you know, sometimes dinner was not a five-star, three-course meal. It was just chicken fingers because I had a good writing day and and that was okay. So I just, I learned. I learned how to make time for something that all of a sudden was so important to me. When you got the publishing deal, your editing process wasn't over then. You actually ended up working with your editor, Carol, and what happened to the manuscript then? I did. I worked with Carol, who was just really, she was amazing and a great mentor. Uh, we did spend about, let's about three months going back and forth, changing a few things, um, nothing major. I wouldn't say there were a couple characters that maybe a character was a little flat, maybe we needed to add something. It was, Carol and I had actually never met in person during that process. That was, that was interesting. We did everything over phone and over email and yeah, got it done within about three months or so. And it made it that much better. She's, she's such a pro. She's an industry veteran. She's been an editor for, oh my gosh, I think 40 years. I learned a lot from her. And you ended up writing, I think you both revised the ending and you wrote a new second from the ending scene as well. That's true. The ending was something that I worked on with my agent and then worked on again with Carol because they both felt there needed to be a little bit more of a happy ending, if you can call it that. And I I was feeling a lot of resistance because I, I didn't really think that there could be a happy ending under the circumstances. I don't know how much you want me to give away about the story, but um, but I think that we found a really nice compromise that really completed the arc of the mother in my story, especially with that chapter that we added second to last. And the ending, I think, left you, hopefully, uh, more hopeful for the family as they continue on on their journey without us. I think you leave with a feeling that, okay, they might just be all right. So I'm a memoirist, you're a novelist, and one of the things I struggle with a lot is how much can I tell of somebody else's story? So you used your kids as a, well, used your kids, you employed your children in a a affirming and positive way as a focus group, and you used them to determine the voice of Zach, the young narrator of the book. How did you balance getting honest moments of a child's life that in some ways were rooted in your experience with your own children, but without feeling like you were compromising their privacy? Well, I think that I definitely use them as my focus groups. I watched them a lot more closely. I I tried to imagine how would they react in certain situations and how would they process certain situations. And so I think that I... I watched them closely and I imagined how would they react, but it was not necessarily based on, obviously, thankfully, um, anything that they've ever really experienced themselves. So I always pictured their voices in my head and I always pictured them in, in, in the situations that I wrote, which was a really hard thing to do because my little pr- protagonist, Zach, finds himself in an awful situation. And of course, I would never want that for my own children. But I had to put myself in that place and I had to put kind of them into that place because otherwise I don't think it would have sounded authentic. But I I don't think I violated my children's privacy because it didn't really tell any experience that that they actually went through. 
you're a first-time author. What's surprising to you about the writing life or what's surprising to you about the publishing process? Surprising to me about the, the writing life is how absolutely addicting it is and how all-consuming it is and how it changes it changes everything. It cha- for me, it changed how I go through my life and how I look at the world around me and how all of a sudden I pause and I take in situations that I probably wouldn't have noticed otherwise only because I think, hey, this is a really interesting situation. I should remember this in case I ever want to write this down. So it, it just opened my eyes kind of to uh, life around me. So that was a, a big, very pleasant surprise. And surprising about the the publishing process, uh, the biggest surprise was the lead time, <laughs> really, because you there was so much hoopla at the beginning when all of a sudden my manuscript sold kind of all over the world, and there was so much attention and flattery and all that going on, and then it's crickets, and nothing really happens. You you work on your manuscript with your editor, and that's that's an interesting experience, but there is there nothing else happens. You just go straight back to your to your regular life and taking care of your kids like nothing ever happened. Now I'm entering, I think, the phase where stuff is going to happen and I'm looking forward to that and I think it's, it's going to be hopefully a lot of fun if I get used to this interviewing thing because right now I'm sweating <laughs> and I'm nervous. But there was like a seven-month gap where basically the book was done and nothing else was happening. That's right. And at the end of the day, it actually turned out to be very good timing for me because you know, my, one of my children was going through a health thing that really requi- required my full attention. And so I'm glad, that, I'm glad that it worked out that way, but it was still surprising and something to get used to. So now we're five months away and I'm just, I don't know. It's all going to be a big surprise, I think. I don't know what to expect. Most of the writers we get on the Brevity podcast are people who are either they have more than one book out. A lot of them have more than five or 10 books out, or they're people who have been kind of steeped in the literary world. And for you, this is all brand new. But I know that a lot of our listeners are not necessarily steeped in the literary world and are not people with five books out. So what would you say to someone who has an idea, has never written anything before, and, and thinks, oh, well, maybe, maybe I should write this? What, what should they do? write it. (laughs) You know, I don't think that I would never presume that I'm in position at this point to give anybody advice. But I can just say that for me, I sat down and I wrote that story. And, you know, maybe the, the advice that I can give is don't think too much about the end game. Think about the story, make sure it's something that really matters to you and focus on that. When I started writing, I did it for me because I wanted to write the story and I never in a million years would have thought, honestly, that I would publish it. That never crossed my mind until you and I were much further along with, with my manuscript. So I think focus a little bit less on I want to get this published and more on I want to write this. Is that a quote that I stole from you? I don't think so. But it's, it's a good thing. And, and actually, like when you and I first met, you found me on the internet and you sent me, I think, two chapters, like 40 or 50 pages, something like that. And your email to me said, you just wanted to know if you were wasting your time. And no, you certainly weren't. But I think that even if the pages had not shown the level of talent and the, the beauty of the story that you wrote, it's still not a waste of time to work on something you care about. No, that's, tr- that's definitely true. I agree with you. 
I think what I meant by that is, should I learn a little bit more about writing before I write? Although, you know, I think it's perfectly fine to just sit down and write if it feels good and if it helps you process and if it helps you deal with your feelings, uh, then just write it, obviously. I I just wanted to know, hey, you know, would I be better off just taking a writing class or some kind of seminar or going to a conference or something like that because I had no exposure? at all so and and I found you and I gravitated towards you out of all the writing coaches or editors that I saw because you called yourself you call yourself the unkind (laughs) editor and I thought that's exactly what I need I need someone to tell me straight you know what learn how to do this a little bit and then dive back into it or you know what maybe write that symphony and don't don't write that book Um, so but you're you're right and I I, you know it's never a waste of time to write And it's interesting because I come out of an MFA program, but I was definitely writing before I ever studied writing in school. I mean, I remember being three or four years old and dictating stories to my mother, and she wrote them down before I could write. I mean, have you always loved books? I've always loved books. I've always loved reading. Um, I grew up with a with a uh, with a mom that is one of the biggest book fans I've ever met in my entire life Uh, every single wall in our apartment was covered with bookshelves and books and I kept a journal I wrote back you know back then we actually wrote letters and I wrote a lot of those handwritten letters but I never wrote wrote stories and I think that's because I never thought that I could and and that's a, a pretty typical thing for me that I I don't have a lot of confidence in myself and I I don't usually trust myself to do things so then I don't do them I went to law school for a semester and then I thought you're not smart enough to do this so I dropped out so that's kind of that's kind of my thing I suffer from uh, imposter syndrome and never think that I'm good enough to do something so I don't think that I would have expected that I can sit down and write and that's why I never did what was powerful enough about this story that it kept you going instead of succumbing to imposter syndrome I kind of loved this character, Zach. I fell in love with him. He was almost like my child. And I wanted to spend time with him, and I wanted to see where his story goes. And quite honestly, like I said, I just really enjoyed writing. And I also started to like what I was writing. So when I went back and I reread things that I had written, I thought to myself, I actually like to read what I'm writing, so I'm going to write more, so I have more, more, that I, more to like. So I kind of, my gut told me this is a good story. And that, that is actually one of the first times in my life that that happened, that my gut said, uh, you're doing something that is good, keep going. That's pretty cool. What else should, uh, we've, got, we've got such a meowy cat, I feel like we should try and get the kitty on the, on the mic if we can. <laughs> so one of the interesting things about writing a first book and having it be projected to be successful at at this time is that people would like you to write a second book and right now you're kind of working through the process of, of how do you get started so so tell us a little bit about that so that is uh, a weird situation I'm in now because I do feel 
a little bit of pressure and I don't know if it's from, from the outside or if it's from coming from myself that yes there you know who knows if it's going to be successful book number one but people are asking are you working is there a second book coming and um, that's stressful so for, for several reasons and I think one reason is I think that I figured out a, a way to tell a pretty compelling story from a child's perspective can I do it from an adult's perspective I don't know I'm going to try the thing is that um, it's like I said, this, this first story was a story that really mattered to me and that, that really was close to my heart. And I think that's why I was able to write it the way I wrote it. And I don't think that I can just go on and just write any kind of second story like that. I think I have to wait for something that touches me as deeply as this story. And I have, I have a lot of ideas. I'm going to try them out. And I think I'm just going to have to keep trusting my instincts and my my gut and hopefully they will lead me to my next book in the meantime you're writing blog posts and stuff to go out to your eventual mailing list and that kind of thing what's it like to be writing personal stuff that's that's truthful and that's nonfiction and that, that talks about your life that is an interesting experience because I'm 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 a pretty private person and I also don't necessarily think that I I'm so interesting that people will want to read about me or, or hear about me. I would consider myself a pretty average person. Um, but it's fun, and I do recognize that I've had... I do have a kind of interesting story to tell now because I'm a, I'm a first-time author who's never written before and happened to... Um, I don't know. I, sh I shouldn't say have some success because it hasn't happened yet, so who <laughs> knows? But it's, it's, I think it's an interesting story, and I actually enjoy telling it, especially because... I would love to encourage other stay-at-home moms who may s struggle like I did with that situation where you really want to be home with your children and you know that you're fortunate that you, that you can, but at the same time, there's also still an adult in you that, that really longs for more. And to me, that was a big struggle, that situation, and, and writing kind of saved me from that, but I really want to encourage other moms to... First of all, don't be afraid to admit that it's difficult. And and second of all, try to find something that fulfills you. And, and that can be, I'm sure, a thousand different things to, to different people. But but take yourself, take care of yourself and take yourself seriously and find something that fulfills you because I think that's really important. Thank you so much. Will you read to us a little bit from your book? So Rhiannon just whispered to me that she has never read this before out loud. So I'm very excited. So I'm just going to start with the first chapter of Only Child. It's called The Day the Gunman Came. The thing I remembered the most about the day the gunman came was my teacher, Miss Russell's breath. It was hot and smelled like coffee. The closet was dark except for a little light that was coming in through the crack of the door that Miss Russell was holding shut from the inside. There was no door handle on the inside, only a loose metal piece, and she pulled it in with her thumb and pointer finger. Be completely still, Zach, she whispered. Don't move. I didn't, even though I was sitting on my left foot and I was giving you pins and needles and it hurt a lot. Miss Russell's coffee breath touched my cheek when she talked, and it bothered me a little. Her fingers were shaking on the metal piece. She had to talk to Evangeline and David and Emma a lot behind me in the closet because they were crying and were not being completely still. 
I'm here with you guys, Miss Russell said. I'm protecting you. Shh, please be quiet. We kept hearing the pop sounds outside and screaming. Pop, pop, pop. It sounded a lot like the sounds from the Star Wars game I sometimes play on the Xbox. Always three pops and then quiet again. Quiet or screaming. Miss Russell did little jumps when the pop sounds came and, she whisp and the whispering got faster. Don't make a sound. Evangeline made hiccuping sounds. Pop, hick. Pop, hick. Pop, hick. I think someone peed in their underwear because it smelled like that in the closet. Like Miss Russell's breath and pee. And like the jackets that were still wet from when it rained at recess. Not too much to play outside, Mrs. Colara said. What, are we made of sugar? The rain didn't bother us. We played soccer and cops and bad guys and our hair and jackets got wet. I tried to turn and put my hand up and touched the jackets to see if they were still wet. Don't move, Miss Russell whispered to me. She switched hands to hold the door closed and her bracelets made jingling sounds. Miss Russell always wears a lot of bracelets on her right arm. Some have little things called charms hanging off them that remind her of special things. And when she goes on vacation, she always gets a new charm to remember it. When we started first grade, she showed us all her charms and told us where she got them from. Her new one that she got on the summer break was a boat. It's, it's like a tiny version of the boat she went on to go really close to a huge waterfall called Niagara Falls, and that's in Canada. My left foot really started to hurt a lot, and I tried to pull it out only a little so Miss Russell wouldn't notice. We just came in from recess and put our jackets in the closet, then math books out when the pop sounds started. At first, we didn't hear them loud. They were like all the way down the hallway in the front where Charlie's desk is. When parents come to pick you up before dismissal or at the nurse's office, they always stop at Charlie's desk and write down their name and show their driver's license and get a tag that says visitor on a red string and they have to wear it around their neck. Charlie is the security guy at McKinley and he's been here for 30 years. When I was in kindergarten last year, we had a big party in the auditorium to celebrate his 30 years. Even a lot of parents came because he was the security guy already when they were kids and went to McKinley, like mommy. Charlie said he didn't need a party. I already know everybody loves me, he said, and laughed his funny laugh. But he got a party anyway, and I thought he looked happy about it. He put up all the artwork we made for him for the party around his desk and took the rest home to hang it up. My picture for him was right in the middle at the front of his desk because I'm a really good artist. Quiet pop sounds at first. Miss Russell was right in the middle of telling us about what pages in the math book were for classwork and what pages were for homework. The pop sounds made her stop talking and she made wrinkles on her forehead. She walked over to the classroom door and looked out of the glass window. What the? she said. Pop, pop, pop. Then she took a big step back from the door and said, fuck. She really did. The F word. We all heard it and started laughing. Fuck. Right after she said it, we heard, we heard sounds coming from the intercom on the wall, and then a voice said, Lockdown, lockdown, lockdown. It wasn't Mrs. Colaris's voice. When we practiced lockdown drills before, Mrs. Colaris said, Lockdown through the intercom, once, but this voice said it a lot of times, fast. Miss Russell's face got whitish, and she stopped laughing. We stopped laughing because she looked so different and wasn't smiling at all. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I spoke with Rhiannon Navin and her kitty, Lululemon, in their home in New Rochelle, New York. Are you lost in the middle of your manuscript, mired in the current draft? 
Are you wondering why you ever started this crazy project? If you've been following the Brevity blog, you know I'm leading Rebirth Your Book, a manuscript work retreat in Fort Kochi, India, limited to six participants. Before arrival, I evaluate everybody's manuscripts, you get an editorial letter and a Skype meeting to talk through what to do next. Once in India, I'll guide you through key revisions and new material, and we'll spend one-on-one -on -one time discussing your writing career and what happens next with your book. You'll go home with a personalized work plan, and I help you stay on track with a follow-up call after the retreat. In Rebirth Your Book, your work receives the care and attention that publishers invest in their top authors. You'll get specific sit-down-and-do-it strategies to finish your book and make it sellable. You'll be sharing energy with fellow writers in the daily writing room while staying focused on your own pages. Rebirth Your Book is also a travel experience. I've led small group immersive tours on four continents, and I'm delighted to share another place I love with a select group. We're going to explore hidden corners most tourists never see, seeking spontaneous, genuine connections and renewing our creative spirit. For hundreds of years, the cycle of reincarnation and regeneration has fueled Fort Kochi, India. Rediscover your novel or memoir and your desire for the page. Transform your next draft from a dreaded chore to a driving vision. Rebirth your book. There's more information at rebirthyourbook.com. Ander Munson lives in Michigan, where he edits the magazine Diagram and the New Michigan Press. He's the author of Neck Deep and Other Predicaments, Other Electricities, and Vacation Land. Recommended adjectives to describe Ander Munson include phenomenal, maverick, law-breaking, future addict, brainy but beautiful, chubby, and bright but misguided. We spoke via Skype from his home in Michigan. You've been called bizarre, unique. Um, there's a YouTube video of you reading your poem in a tiger suit. So mm -hmm. do you actively pursue weirdness in your work or does it just happen? I guess I wouldn't say I actively pursue the weirdness, but I have a lot of ideas that other writers and sort of makers might not bother to pursue. So maybe they have a, like a higher filter. Uh -huh. But I, I mean, a lot of what I what I enjoy about sort of writing and making things, I mean, is the, the kind of pleasure I get out of doing things. Mm -hmm. And so I give myself a kind of permission to pursue uh, these strange ideas. Actually, I mean, I've been doing these, like these predator poems, you know, from the movie predator, the uh -huh. action movie, the Schwarzenegger movie from 1987. And I ended up buying to make these predator poems. I bought uh, an infrared camera uh-huh. Uh, I don't know if you've seen the movie, but like that's sort of the, the cool thing about the Predator is it's it sees an infrared. I ended up buying a camera just so I could take infrared video, just mm -hmm. so I can like record these videos for the Predator poems, which is gives me, I mean, I know it's a kind of specious project, but it gives me um a lot of like pleasure. And mm -hmm. if I'm not, you know, if you're not enjoying what you're doing, like why do you keep doing what you're doing? Tell me about the Predator poem. Why did you write a poem about Predator? I don't know what gave me the idea exactly, but I think it came out of, there was this workshop, a poetry workshop I took with Bruce Smith at Alabama when I was doing my MFA. The thing that I remember the most strangely was someone did a presentation on the poet Paul Manette, whose work I didn't really know. We were reading one of his books in class. It was uh, an elegy that he wrote for his lover, Raj, who had uh, recently died of AIDS. 
And one of the sort of factoids that the person who presented on Manette mentioned was that Manette, who you know would go on, maybe he had just won the National Book Award for you know for autobiography or memoir. I, I don't think for poetry, though he's well known as a poet. That Manette had written the novelization of the movie Predator, uh, that I thought was a really strange fact, and I hadn't I didn't give it a lot of thought at the time, mainly just because. I wasn't maybe far enough away from the kind of action movies of my youth. Mm-hmm. But then I, w- I came back to it because the movie Predator, is a, it's a really strange movie in the sense that it's the, I think it's the best of, of the sort of Schwarzenegger movies by far. But it's the one that has, I think, had the most cultural penetration, mm-hmm. certainly for a whole, a whole generation of guys, especially. And it's the one that is the most quotable. And then I, I started thinking about it a few years ago. And at some point, um, I started writing Predator poems, and then I ended up reading the novelization. And it's a really good novelization, not just because so Paul Manette as a gay poet writing a novelization of one of the more homoerotic movies of the 1980s. You know, there, there turns out to be quite a bit of, you know, sexuality in it and like, you know, glistening manhood and so on. But also as a poet, I mean, he really finds some of the really beautiful moments in the film. And he's also working from a pre-production script. So there's a bunch of stuff in the book that actually isn't in the movie and isn't in the mythology. And so mm-hmm. it brought my mind kind of back to like what was beautiful about the movie. And the movie is a beautiful movie. And so I just kind of got fascinated by this and started writing these Predator persona poems. So I've been working on this whole book of these. And like what I find that is great about the Predator poems, I've had the most fun writing poems that I've ever had writing poems. I mean, kind of for obvious reasons, because you can just put the predator in whatever. Uh-huh. But they're also like these really kind of depressing poems. Um, and they, they allow me, I think, to work on some aspects of like rage that I have with contemporary culture. I mean, they're funny, but they're not just funny. Mm-hmm. Like they're, you know, I mean, we live in a culture now that's like a gun obsessed, fairly violent, psychologically pretty fucked up culture. And I, and I started wondering also, like, I mean, I wonder if any of that is related to having being weaned on these action films. I mean, not that I think, you know, one thing causes the other, but those are insane gun toting machismo films. Mm-hmm. And it seems no surprise that now we live in a culture where, you know, there was like more than one mass shooting every day for the last year on average. Mm-hmm. So the predator sort of offers an interesting way of trying to kind of come at that some of that cultural material in a surprising way and they're great to they're great to read one of the fascinating things about your work is that in pursuing stuff that fascinates you and that interests you and working especially in in different and inventive ways with form you've done some really unique things that nobody else is doing purely by pursuing the work you want to be doing yeah like, you know, I teach in an MFA program and I teach undergrad creative writing too. You know, I mean, I do think a little bit about how workshops can, when done badly, kind of like saw the edges off of people's like idiosyncrasies. Mm-hmm. And I think that's a really terrible outcome. I mean, when that happens. Um, and so this comes kind of from my own practice. Like one thing I really like to encourage with people is to so for them to pursue some of their weird ideas. Uh-huh. Because it leads you into places that I, I sometimes are terrible and like, or uninteresting or both or just unfruitful, but they following those, those sort of those kind of strange directions or impulses get you into places that 
other people just kind of don't go. I've done exercises before where we worked on sonnets or we worked on, you know, other sestinas or other really complex poetry forms to just think about form and think about shape. It feels like some of your work is, is almost the flip side of that, where you're concentrating deeply on the form, but there isn't the same kind of formality associated with the form. Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm not a particularly formal person, you know, in that sense of the word. Mm-hmm. And that, I mean, it's because I sort of have, like, I think partially like a very playful approach to it and a kind of irreverence toward it. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's how, you know, I sort of start, first started playing with, I hated the sonnet, for instance, until I realized that it's not a structure, it's an opportunity for kind of reinvention. Mm-hmm. Um, you don't have to do, I mean, even it should be like 14 lines-ish, uh, but but knowing like you know knowing what the rules are allows you to kind of bend them and tweak expectations, which I think is a lot of fun. I mean, some of those sort of explicit formal constraints come into the essays also. And that was part of the project of Letter to a Future Lover. Is I decided you know I had to write these things. I was writing these things that I would leave in books for other readers, and that meant that they had to be pretty short, which meant they had to be in my mind. 750 words tops, which mm-hmm. is the front and back of a six by nine card that I could like slip into most books I was sort of playing with. And then immediately, like when I realized that, okay, that's pretty short for an essay, especially I had to find other ways of teaching myself how to write essays because I just didn't, I don't write or I didn't write short essays. I only wrote long essays because I just wanted to keep throwing more stuff in it. And so part of the project of doing that was that I started writing a lot of them as lineated poems like that was the first draft mm-hmm. and then I loosened them up sort of in in the revision process so like I mean having that constraint forces me to have to do something differently which forces me to kind of get in my inventor mode mm-hmm. which is a really pleasurable mode for me to be in and I think that shows up even if it's not maybe super obvious reading some of the essays some of them are, I mean still have more aspects of the poem in them than you know than others but I think that it, it sort of shows up in the work. I hope it does, at least in you know an interesting way for readers. Sometimes things come to you in response to your willingness just to follow what seem like they're to other people might seem like really bad ideas. Uh-huh. But that's I mean that's what that's what makes literature good. Like I can't think of any novel or any piece of art mm-hmm. that seemed like a good idea in the first draft of it. I mean the plots all sound terrible. Mm-hmm. Um, like, I mean, again, I'm thinking like an obvious example is Nicholas and Baker's The Mezzanine. I mean, all the plot is, I'm going to write a book in which I'm just going to be, you know, this guy just takes the ele- the escalator to the mezzanine. Like, no, that's a terrible idea, Nicholas and Baker. You should write something else. Mm-hmm. But, you know, you, you find a kind of glee or glory maybe in the idea of pursuing that idea. Or Don Quixote. Mm-hmm. I'm going to write this novel about this like deluded dude who just like goes and tries to like prove himself. And then halfway the through it, I'm going to start talking directly to the reader as the author. Yeah. But the thing is, you know, you, as a writer, you probably you stumble your way into those things. And you're like, oh, you know, I'll give myself some line and see how far this can go. Mm-hmm. And then along the line, you're like, oh, this is actually kind of starting to work in a weird sort of strange way. And so like that's if you just shut it down early, I think that you don't see where some of these ideas can take you. I mean, admittedly, most 
I'm sure the large percentage of these bad ideas actually turn out to be bad novels or bad poems or bad essays or whatever. And that I hopefully you learn that before you spend your whole life writing bad things. Mm -hmm. But if you're not willing to kind of follow that idea for a while, like you're never going to get to the good part. And it's interesting because I think ideas, whether or not they're good or bad, often mutates with the time. Because when you were working on Vanishing Point, the using the internet for a book was like, ooh, hypertext, new, crazy, wacky, you know, is any is in is this just a fad? Is anybody gonna do anything with us? And then now in the Kindle version of Letter to My Future Lover, the links are sort of a fundamental part of the story. And in a way, like the links become the marginalia and the ephemera of the modern electronic reader. You know, you can, somebody might click on one of those links and head down a completely different rabbit hole and, you know, come back to the book in an entirely different frame of mind and approaching it from a different angle. Yeah, I mean, I didn't even want to do the Kindle version of that. I had no mm -hmm. interest in an ebook. I mean, for obvious reasons, given the subject matter of the book. Mm -hmm. But my editor at Grey Wolf was like, well, I know this is ridiculous, but we like to do an ebook. I said, oh, oh, well, okay, it is ridiculous. But if we're going to do an ebook, I mean, I'm not opposed to ebooks. I'm just opposed to dumping content from one thing into another form without thinking about what that other form can do for it. Mm -hmm. And so I said, okay, well, we'll do it. If we do an ebook, I want two things. I want to be able to offer like an alternative, like a couple itineraries through the book. And I want to write another essay that'll only appear in the ebook. So there's one of those essays that is only in the ebook version. The one, uh, it's called For Those of You Who Read in Light or something very close to that, which is like kind of lambasting the reader for reading the ebook, which is, you know, I mean, that's what you deserve for reading an ebook, but you also, it's the only way to read that essay to get that kind of version of the book. So it offer, I mean, it offers some things that I think are unique to the form and, or to the medium of reading that take advantage of that, at least to some extent. How did your work start being all about form? In my first, in my first fiction workshop, I think at Knox College, which is run by this guy, Robin Metz, who still teaches there. And he's a spectacular teacher. I mean, they were, I was telling my grad students about this workshop. We would just meet from 7.30 every Wednesday until it was done, which was usually midnight. Mm -hmm. And they were just, what? I mean, they blew their minds. You could have like a five-hour class. Sometimes I went to two in the morning. And there was always enough to talk about, and it felt really energetic. Mm -hmm. And so the requirement for it when I was you had to have turned a 25-page portfolio at the end. And I just was really freaked out by the idea of the 25-page portfolio. That seemed like a lot of pages. I mean, never <laughs> mind that now I like, you know, have a hard time like writing an essay under 15 or 20 pages. But at the time, like that just seemed that seemed like a lot, a lot of effort. And I said, well, okay can I write 25 one page stories? And he seemed, he's like, yeah, okay, that's, that's great. That's fine. I mean, his only requirement was it had to be 25 pages, a sort of sustained effort. And I said, oh, okay. So I felt like I'd kind of hacked the assignment and I got a kind of energy from that. And that's what I did. I wrote these, these short stories um, that all took place in bathrooms and the story, I guess you could call it that, or the fiction was called bathrooms which is also a kind of contained space. And the bathroom is a container and a kind of contained form and a, a form and a place that is, you know, remarkably underwritten uh -huh. in the, the history of American letters. Although there's, you know, there's some in Don Quixote. I mean, we, we live in a kind of prudish society, clearly. And a lot of shit happens in bathrooms. Ha ha. So I wrote these like sort of short shorts 
And some of them like ended up being longer. And I ended up about writing, I don't know, 30, 35 pages of them. But I got a, I got a kind of charge from that. Mm-hmm. And one of them actually appears, I think, in Other Electricities, my first book of book of fiction that kind of made it through into that way. So I had the sense that, okay, I mean, th- at that point, form doesn't mean it doesn't mean you have to follow all the rules of the form. It's not just a constraint, it's an opportunity. And an opportunity that kind of gives you energy. As anyone knows, if you worked within a received form, I mean, there are there are electricities that sort of force you in certain ways and open up other ideas. Mm-hmm. So that led to messing around with other things, writing the index poem, um, my first index poem in grad school, and then working later in you know in the um, the Harvard outline or like the index essay and sort of longer versions of that and kind of you get addicted to that kind of constraint and electricity mm-hmm. and so it's blossomed from there and i've continued to sort of work to the point that you know i mean letter to a future lever are these like sort of short essays that i had to teach myself how to write because i didn't know how to write a short essay uh-huh. but that's the benefit is like you, when you try to do something you haven't done before you have to figure out a new way of doing that or adapting the old way that you had and so i was able to do that and now i've kind of gotten the mode i can only write short essays which is not great because I want to get back to writing other things too because they're they're kind of limiting. Maybe you can write one twenty-five page essay. Yeah, I mean that actually <laughs> might be a better. I have one. I've been writing one this long essay about my giant inflatable Rudolph decoration. Uh-huh. So a guy bought a fifteen-foot inflatable Rudolph. As one does. Um, yeah. Well, I mean, my neighbors have a sort of culture of putting up a lot of Christmas decorations, and so two years ago, I'm like, well. I don't know. I ran across it in the Hammaker Schlemmer catalog, which is a sort of terrible American catalog. Uh-huh. But this thing kind of stuck with me. I'm like, you know what? I really might need one of those huge Rudolphs. Yeah. And as soon as I did, I bought, you know, $400 inflatable Rudolph and I blew it up. And man, I felt awesome having my giant Rudolph in my front yard in Arizona. And they took a great deal of pleasure in it. Cause like, you know, I don't, I don't have a lot of Christmas decorations. I just have one huge Christmas decoration. That's really all you need. I mean, that, that takes all the boxes right there. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. I mean, problem solved. Um, and so I've been, I've been writing an essay that's like now a 10,000 word essay, mm-hmm. which is probably going to be a lot longer before it's done. And that's fine. That's good too. But I, I do feel like I need to finish that this Christmas. Cause like, I only am really in the mode to work on that, like around Christmas, like once a year. Will you read for us something from Letters to a Future Lover? Sure. I could read if you want the, I mean, the piece that appeared in Brevity, which is still one of my favorites. That would be fantastic. Okay. It's called Letter to a Future Lover, and it has this long inscription, which you can read in Brevity, of course, of this, this great thing I found in a copy of Gary Snyder's Turtle Island, which gets quoted in the piece itself. So those who want to read more of it, you can read the whole inscription, this three-page like erotic inscription on my website, otherelectricities.com, if you want to look at the whole thing. So letter to a future lover. Handwritten, it goes without saying. This inscription to an unnamed lover goes on for three pages before arriving at a final sorrow at the lover's loss. Quote, today we are with different lovers, unquote, but no regrets. Was it ever sent? ever read? One thing is sure, it was inscribed and meant. Such passion cannot be shrugged off until it can. I found the book in Casa de los Ninos on Princeton Mountain, thrift shop stuffed with this stuff, 
the stuffing escaping the chewed on animals packed in the discount bin. Take six for a buck. Doll heads are free. They stare at your future, our future maybe, lover, if we ever come together. Dear future lover, every time it feels like forever when it's new. Bright colors, fabric softener, calliopes that were once terrifying, softening into daylight as it fades. You know, your lovers surely number more than mine. That's fine, but when I fall, it's ditch witch hitting electric line, and the whole world alive and lit in amperes for a moment. And it might be gone again a nanosecond later, the body aching with or from or for the jolt, and perhaps it's fever dream, and who cares where it comes from as long as it's fast and seems like it might last until we're rusting into dust. We're always dying for the future. Otherwise, it couldn't ever come. That it might split ever's seams apart, that it might bring down the lights until forever's in the mirror and the book is given up for thrift. It doesn't matter. Maybe this book was never sent. I can imagine that, an inscription toward the future. Maybe the lover's dead. Maybe the lover's lover's dead. Maybe we are like all those who had their laughs recorded into tracts for television shows years before, who continue to laugh now, a lifetime, a lifeline, a phone, a friend later, disembodied, at jokes that are no longer funny. Perhaps they never were. We are all in wires eventually, reduced to what we said or didn't say, and what we wrote or didn't write, and who we loved or didn't love, and lost, and never told it, except writing inner to a book. We are all discarded, discordant, and so I salute your bravery, book inscriber. Your heart is big enough for both of us so that there is no room for mockery in me. Anyone willing to strip themselves this bare, this fast, this way, deserves our breathlessness and our heart's attention. Let us spend an hour and then longer in contemplation. If you open, open all the way, or as much as you can bear, or else there's nothing here at all. The inscription goes on to quote from Duras, the lover, and then quote, I cried when I was with you this one time more than 20 years later. It was the reason for life, and yet I knew that it would end, unquote. A codex is a door, future lover. You can put whatever through it for a reader you imagine coming to your words in a day, a decade, a days of centuries, entries in a future book. Codices have histories. They are leafed, spined, embodied, read by future lovers I imagine in bodices in just this kind of light at night. The future is a mystery lover, a memory, the scent of wisteria coming up from somewhere. Or a codex as a whole, through which we might not communicate, but instead be transformed entirely, through which we might descend without notice or equipment and not want or be able to return. And that one's sort of the most spectacular, I think. Well, that one or the defacer material is the most spectacular of the, the things I found in books, I thought. The book kind of began with that inscription that I found. It must have been like seven or eight years ago. Because I ended up, at the time, I just like photocopied the inscription and scanned it and sent it to a bunch of friends. I'm like, this is really an amazing inscription. And clearly that had sort of provided a kind of seed to think about how people use books as a venue for writing to each other or just or writing to other readers like I mean this one probably didn't get I don't know if it was given to the lover I don't know if the lover then gave it away or died 
sometimes happens, or maybe it was just never given to the lover and then it was donated to, you know, to Casa de los Ninos, but it ended up finding me. And I found I was just kind of moved by that accidental discovery, which is a, you know, a, a familiar one, I think, for people that buy and read books used or read library books. And one that I, I think, you know, I sort of a lament is not available oftentimes to those who read electronic texts, which don't include that kind of material that readers have sort of added to it. Would you talk a little bit about the craft in that essay? You've done some really beautiful things there with internal rhymes, and Mm -hmm. there's a really nice rhythm to it. How much of that for you flows, and how much of that for you is technically crafted? About, you know, about 75% of these essays were originally written as lineated poems. Mm -hmm. Then, like, thinking about, like, end rhymes or internal rhymes became, with a lot of them, part of the thing that moved me along Mm -hmm. in the essay. So those aren't planned in the sense of, like, crafted, but, I mean, they're, it's a way of composing. And it's something I've actually been working on for a while. Like, when I'm drafting, even if I sort of type the wrong the wrong word because I type, you know, faster than not. T- well, I think faster than I type. So sometimes I'll just accidentally like mistype the word, but instead of trying to delete that word, like what I try to do in the composition process, I try to leave that and kind of riff on the, the thing I meant. Mm-hmm. So like, you know, you know, like there's discarded and discordant. I don't know if this is a, an example of this or not. I think it probably is where I probably meant to write discarded, but like accidentally wrote discordant. And so instead of deleting that error, I sort of tried to incorporate it. Mm-hmm. And it's actually not one of the better moments in that essay because it's I sort of stumble over it sometimes when I read. But that's there and that's the kind of riff-oriented, rhyme-oriented kind of sound-generated or sound-following process was is kind of part of the composition strategy. And it comes out more in revising them mm-hmm. where I'm like, okay, well, what kind of works here? What's still has pleasure that sort of is, seems like it's just for me. Like where, like where are the sort of, you know, the tangents that aren't interesting to follow. And there's actually a moment in that essay, like when I'm sort of talking about, I'm talking about like the people who had their voices recorded laughing in audiences. And sometimes when I read it, I sort of like to go on this tangent that if you ever watch a show and it has a laugh track, but doesn't have a live studio audience, which is a lot of shows, the laugh tracks are all people that are dead. Um, so you're listening to the dead laughing and they, because they were recorded at primarily Marcel Marceau per- performances, the mime by this guy, Charlie Douglas, who had this thing called the laugh box. And he would record audience, different kinds of audience interactions, primarily laugh tracks. And then, and he would do it in a mime performance because then you don't have to deal with, you know, the, the sound from the stage also. And this is kind of the early days of recording and so on. So he recorded all these like different kinds of laugh tracks that then he would then sell to people either for they would just use the laugh track or what he would he called like audio sweetening, which is where you could add extra laugh tracks to, you know, to sort of sweeten the sound of the the actual studio audience if they weren't laughing at the right moments or whatever. And I just found that to be really kind of meaningful and wonderful thing that like when you listen, you're laughing along with the dead. And it's an aside I like to kind of go on because I just love the sort of that, that fact of it. I can, I give a little bit of that aside and then I go back to the essay, but like, there's no space for that 
except as a kind of reference in the essay. Mm -hmm. So my solution was like, okay, well, I mean, there's no way to kind of lyrically keep that within the 750 word limit I set for myself, but I'll just write another essay then that kind of talks about that. So they can sort of be rhizomal, like this is a reference to here, and then later we'll talk about the actual thing I'm talking about. So did I miss anything that you want to talk about? No, Do you that's want to fine. send any messages to any other future lovers, dedicate this interview as we count down the greatest poets of American literature? We can dedicate it to Paul Manette, okay. the ghost of. Dedicated to the ghost of Paul Manette. Yeah. Awesome. Anders' latest book, Letter to a Future Lover, is now available at your local independent bookstore and online. Show notes and links to the people, places, and books we've discussed today are on the Brevity blog at www.brevity.wordpress.com. Find us on Twitter at BrevityMag. Our editor-in-chief is Dinty W. Moore. Our podcast editor is Catherine Rose. Technical support from Alpha Pomels and Ronald Anaha. Our theme music is by Mike Viseglia and Zach Sulam. The Brevity Podcast is produced by me, Allison K. Williams. Find me on Twitter at Gorilla Memoir. Like the rebel, not the ape. Thanks for listening. Join us next month on the Brevity Podcast for our special episode, One Minute Memoir. <laughs>